This is an RNZ podcast. As we've heard, there's been lots of angst in the media this past week about whether our hard-won COVID-free status has been compromised by quarantine failures, and media overseas have been picking up on that too. And that's not surprising, seeing as they'd made a big deal of our apparent success in containing it so far. This week, a group of Otago University experts backed calls for an inquiry into the response to work out their effectiveness and where improvements could be made later on. And among them, Michael Baker, Professor of Public Health at the University of Otago and one of the most familiar faces and voices in our media during the current crisis, and internationally as well. Last Wednesday, for example, he was interviewed by international science magazine New Scientist. It concluded by noting that Professor Baker hopes that the COVID-19 response here will inspire more ambitious action on climate change and biodiversity loss. It's not a new hope. A month ago, he said this, appearing on the US-based global TV news show Democracy Now! The far more severe uh, threats on the horizon are about climate change and loss of biodiversity. And while those threats are going to increase and intensify over the next few years to the next few decades, they will be far more severe for humanity than the pandemic. And that's why I really hope that we will take the lesson from this event and apply it to these other threats. So that means listening to scientists, um, strengthening our global health agencies like World Health Organization and UN, and really taking a coordinated global response um, to these events. And so that's my huge hope from this very destructive pandemic. And Professor Baker, it turns out, is not the only one trying to put that message out across the media. Earlier this year, news publisher Stuff appointed its first ever climate change editor, Eloise Gibson, and it launched The Forever Project. Now, this promised clear-eyed, insistent coverage of the epoch-defining challenges of climate change and sustainability, and it marked the launch with a magazine supplement in all of its metropolitan papers on the 25th of March. But it was another peril we faced that we were focused on back then. That was the day we went into Level 4 lockdown. Well, last Wednesday, another Forever Project supplement appeared in the likes of the Press, the Dominion Post and the Waikato Times, and today it's also in the Sunday Star Times. So I asked Eloise Gibson, just how has COVID-19 changed the Forever Project mission? About a year before I arrived, Stuff had launched Quick Save the Planet, which I don't think my boss, Patrick Crudson, would mind me saying was a bit of a seat-of-the-pants type thing. Um, They had a good concept. They had a network of journalists from Stuff publications around the country, so someone from business, someone from sport, someone from each of the regional mastheads uh, who were working on climate change stories, but they didn't have any dedicated staff. So when I was hired, Stuff had decided that they needed a climate change editor and a climate change reporter full-time to cover that round. So my job now, uh, we still have that that grouping of journalists from around the country who contribute climate change stories. So part of my job is working with them, finding out what they've got coming uh, in their areas, what they should perhaps be looking at at, in their areas, making sure they're not crossing over each other. or crossing over with me. And the other part of my job is that I'm the chief of a little team of two. So it's me and Olivia Wannan, who's our senior climate change reporter. She's in Wellington, I'm in Auckland, and we do the bulk of the 
breaking news uh, in the climate change round, as well as thinking, I guess, a bit more strategically about what should we be covering, what should we be investigating, what should we do, what should we do, kind of long term. Um, to make this a, a meaningful round. Uh, and we've got a couple of other little projects as well. So we have a newsletter that comes out each week. Um, we have a quarterly magazine, the Forever Project magazine. And we're also working on a video and podcast called One Hot Minute, which we'd recorded and got so nearly ready to go before lockdown. And, of course, all of our guests, barring the first one, cancelled on us um, People couldn't travel. We weren't allowed to have people in the studio in Auckland. And that kind of had to go on hold. And we're just getting that up and running again now. Can you tell us what actually is in um, edition two of the Forever Project supplement? As you say, it comes out in the Sunday Star Times today. And our theme is Green Rebound. We, we threw around a whole bunch of ideas about what should we focus on for this edition. And really, we couldn't imagine our readers wanting to read about anything else at this point. You know, COVID and the recovery from lockdown is the dominant story in every aspect of news at the moment. And, you know, climate change is no exception. So we decided to kind of take that and run with it and think about what we had learned from this, you know, complete break in our daily lives. Uh, There's obviously enormous sums of government money being spent on the recovery and an opportunity to recover better. The magazine explores that. We look at that from a transport perspective. We've looked at it from housing. Um, There's a lot of new housing being built. What could that contribute Uh, We have looked at uh, industry, industrial heat, and some of the alternatives to using coal for things like drying milk powder, growing hothouse tomatoes, even heating schools it's still being used for. Uh, My feature looks at transport. I'm sure you remember, although I find I'm forgetting already, the roads were deadly quiet during lockdown, and we saw people out on their bikes, out walking, using the roads in a way that they wouldn't normally And it was a bit of a a reset moment, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I don't think that too many people would want to go back to lockdown transport. Uh, We didn't actually manage to really get anywhere, most of us, during that time. So um, it's certainly, you know, it's not something anyone would aspire to long term. But I think it did give people an opportunity to rethink how we get around, how we want to get around, how we want our kids to be able to move around our neighbourhoods. No, I certainly do remember how the the streets were empty or empty-ish um, in where I lived. So we were out with the kids riding bikes in a way we, we just can't because the roads where we live are, are pretty busy. It was as soon as we were announced we were going back to level three that the cars returned when technically we were all supposed to be staying at home, saving lives that way. And as soon as people got the signal, it was back to normal. And to me, that was the signal that old habits, previous pre-COVID habits, would immediately go back in place. And, you know, I'm thinking, if I were you, that this is a hard road because people want to go pretty much back as soon as they can to the lives they had before, which involved mobility is just a massive thing for people. And people hate restrictions being put on it. I think that's true. And I think that's what came across in the feature is that, Right now, the most convenient, easiest option for most people most of the time is their petrol car, and that's why we have so many petrol cars. You know, we simply don't have the alternatives that make it easy to do something else. 
you know, it's very easy to get very weighty when you're writing about climate change, but we had a bit of fun in the magazine as well. So there's a column by the comedian Tom Sainsbury where he has created a character called Carol who's had a personal uh, climate change epiphany. She's got a few tips for us. Uh, There's also a video of Carol on the Stuff website if people are interested in seeing it. And then we've got Zoe George who wrote a lovely uh, light-hearted feature about how you can actually do a lot for climate change from the comfort of the couch. Just sitting there in your trackies and and not doing so much is actually quite a win for your emissions profile. Yeah, that's Zoe George, formerly of this parish, stolen from RNZ by stuff. Uh, Brutally stolen. Um, She was, you know, like all good journalists, she was telling the story, you know, from the perspective of of the average reader. You know, I'm sitting there reading it in my trackies, but she's writing it in some very uh, colourful New Zealand-made fashion. You already mentioned there you had this website, Quick Save the Planet. Uh, which was a kind of clearinghouse, I think, for a lot of stuff, as you mentioned, that crosses over with business, with with all areas of stuff and its news, every other aspect of our lives. But what does this Forever Project actually add to that? What's different about this? Because that looked like uh, the same sort of thing, a a dedicated effort um, directed uh, towards getting people to pay attention to this issue. As I say, we now have dedicated staff, two dedicated staff, which I think adds a huge amount of depth to just, you know, the scale of what we're able to do and the attention that we're able to pay to the issue. Um, But there's also the boss, Sinead Boucher, who's now also our owner. She has committed to cutting stuff's uh, corporate carbon emissions by a quarter uh, in the next, you know, four or five years. Um, You know, stuff's then taking the next steps of looking at the emissions of the companies that produce things for us as well as our own direct emissions. Well, seeing as you mentioned a corporate element, uh, there's also a couple of sponsors here listed, uh, New World, Supermarket Chain Sustainable Business Network, but also The Warehouse, um, which have been identified with the project. If you go and look at it online, their logo's right there, front and centre. I mean, is this a compromise? Because I'm not sure how much stuff, I don't know a great deal about the warehouse's own environmental policies, but, um, I mean, a lot of stuff is imported and a lot of stuff that might end up in landfills comes from the warehouse. Is that really the best fit for a project such as this? Well, firstly, I'd say, you know, landfills is largely a a separate issue. I'm not diminishing it as an environmental issue, um, but, you know, plastic junk ending up in landfill is is bad, but is not primarily a, a climate issue. All journalism, with very few exceptions these days, carries advertising. That is just the reality of how we still make the bulk of our money. So, you know, in order to be able to put the spotlight on the climate crisis the way that we are, we need we need to sell advertising. Um, so we have commercial sponsors who want to be associated, I guess, to get the, the halo effect of being associated with climate change and sustainability. So they get uh, their branding runs alongside our stories, as, as you've noticed, uh, there's sponsored content in the magazine which gets written by the commercial team. You know, the wall is still very much there between editorial and advertising. So they don't direct or suggest the kind of content you may or may not run? You don't have to run the Forever Project content by them before it gets published? Absolutely not, no. Well, in the editorial, Eloise, that's in uh, the edition, the the second uh, Forever Project supplement, which uh, Star Times readers will, I guess, be seeing today if they haven't already, the hitting on it here, time to be bold. Um, you say, we're bringing you this magazine uh, from a frankly incredible moment in history when politicians, all of us, listened to the evidence, then did bold things to avert catastrophe. 
you say we've got to do more bold and incredible things to avoid that other catastrophe, climate turbulence. If we stuff it up, we are stuffed. We only get to do this rebuild once. But there's going to be intense pressure, isn't there, on government to boost growth, create jobs and reverse the COVID economic slump as fast as they can. And, you know, money that might be earmarked for projects to help decarbonise the economy and make a climate contribution will likely go into shovel-ready projects that will create jobs, whether they're good for sustainability or not. It's really going to be an uphill battle, isn't it, to get sustainability at the forefront of a kind of urgent economic rescue I mean, I think we've seen that it has been an uphill effort. I certainly wouldn't dispute that. You know, we have a government that talked up large on climate change before coming into office. And, you know, this is the the single biggest test of their leadership. And I think climate has certainly not always been at the forefront of the response, sometimes for very understandable reasons. I mean, there was a health emergency. Um, there is a jobs emergency, both of which need to be dealt with fairly urgently. It's been interesting to me watching the diversity of voices calling for a low-carbon recovery. And what they seem to be saying is that this is not an either-or. This is not, we build shovel-ready projects, we create jobs, or we make ourselves more resilient to the climate crisis. They're saying we can't actually afford to do both things separately. That is not going to happen. So we need to do them both at once, and let's be smart about how we do it. We have another hugely expensive transition coming to you know, avert the worst of climate change and defend ourselves from the effects, and we don't have the money to pay for both those things separately. So you know, the next tranches of spending will be what determines what happens here and certainly that's a big part of what we're hoping to track over the next you know year or so with the forever project well your own contribution is that um that piece that we talked about earlier the transport feature uh, you've made some really interesting points here you say before level four emissions from transport were hurtling in the wrong direction at speeds an urban rush hour commuter can only dream about and, and that transport emissions have doubled um since today's 30 year olds were born You also say here by 2050, every scrap of CO2 that can't be sucked away will need to have been eliminated from the transport system. And yet, you know, the very day readers of um, daily papers, Waikato Times, Dom Post and the press got this, the light rail project uh, was, was, well, effectively um, killed off. This is all political, isn't it? One of the things that we can and should be doing is to bring a really broad range of ideas to the table in terms of the solutions to this. I think, you know, one of the travesties of climate change itself, but but climate change coverage and politics has been that it's been seen as a left-right thing. It's been partisan, it's been divided, and actually facts and evidence don't work that way. And now that New Zealand is you know, pretty world-leading actually at moving past that polarisation, we are seeing a incredible array of political views on what should be done, ranging from nothing to massive amounts of systemic change today uh, and everything in between. So, you know, you've got New Zealand First saying it supports heavy rail but not light rail. Um, What happens after the next election is, of course, still to be determined. I think that one of the really important things we can do is to air those proposals air what uh, the various parties are saying they 
will and, and won't do for the crisis and to meet other objectives, of course, at the same time, you know, jobs, health, all of these other incredibly important things, and to weigh those against the evidence because there are massive amounts of evidence about what needs to happen and what the consequences for our readers, you know, who are the farmers who are experiencing worse droughts, the business people who want regulatory certainty, they are people who might at some point catch an infectious disease that they wouldn't have, um, you know, without climate change. Massive, they, they have a, a huge interest in us kind of sticking up for them and sticking up for their interests. And but so I think us weighing those solutions is really important. Um, but I agree. I mean, it was it was very funny to have my feature at the top of the Stuff website uh, at the same time as the very top news headline being Light Rail Dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, was a, it was a nice juxtaposition, wasn't it? My yeah. point, I guess, Eloise, is that if you are going to be and want to be, as you say, you do a media effort that really makes a difference, that makes makes change. As part of this effort really have to be almost applying political pressure. If you're going to take it take a stand, it actually has to be hammered home to those who are in the position to make decisions. And that would make it a very different kind of reporting effort. One mm. one that really does take a side in the way that maybe political reporters often don't hold politicians to account on very specific issues. And so maybe it, it needs to be a kind of more aggressive thing to really have the effect that you say you want it to have. I'd just jump in and say I, I don't see that as, as our role. I mean, I don't think it's my job way outside of, of what we want to do with this project. I think our goal is that our readers are incredibly well informed. Our readers are voters and they want to see really, you know, compelling stories, well-researched stories that look at things from all of the angles and inform them really well. And that's what I see our job as doing. I don't see it as getting a particular party to do a particular thing, you know, at any one time. And I think, as you say, that would be a different undertaking, and it's certainly not, you know, the undertaking that I have in mind at the moment. I mean, I guess, you know, you could look at it, Look at the analogy of a health reporter, right? Um, you know, you have a, a very good health journalist who is investigating an issue. They find that there are a large number of preventable cancer deaths in New Zealand and that these cancer deaths are happening because of systemic failures. They will then seek to hold the politicians to account for, you know, are you doing all you can do to, to prevent this harm and should you be looking out for your constituents better. That's the type of journalism I see us doing, and I see that as quite different to, you know, perhaps what you outlined just before. Well, when you were appointed, Eloise, I can recall some people thought that they were sceptical about it because they said, well, here's a, a news organisation effectively taking a position of advocacy on a major public issue, and some saying this is actually a form of bias. I mean, some of them might be climate sceptics who, you know, feel as the media's made up its mind on this issue and a lot of the coverage isn't isn't fair and balanced, maybe. But there will be those who disagree with your position on the importance of the climate issue as regards others, such as economic um, economic reconstruction in the post-COVID era, for example, and who who would say that, you know, any findings that might contradict the things you believe in might be excluded from stuff's coverage in order to promote sustainability. What do you say to those who, who say that effectively this is a kind of form of bias which is affecting the news gathering in ways that other topics, um, you know, the same rules wouldn't be applied? Firstly, I mean, I think it's curious that appointing a journalist to cover the round of climate change, which I think most people would agree is one of the biggest issues of our time and, you know, it affects the economy, affects health, affects business, affects everything, property values, um, 
that appointing dedicated journalists to cover that is biased any more than having specialised business journalists or specialised health journalists or journalists at the political gallery. I mean, you know, media organisations send their people power where there are things happening and where there are things that are important to their readers unfolding. And, you know, that's what this is. So I think it's it's kind of curious that that would be singled out as bias. Um, but, you know, on the kind of censorship angle, if, if you're asking me, you know, should a hundred trustworthy peer-reviewed papers suddenly appear, um, you know, positing some alternative explanation for the, the climate change that we're seeing, um, you know, should the consensus start to shift, should there be, you know, genuine good faith issues here, uh, would I cover that story? Of, you know, of course I would. It would give me great pleasure and no end of relief to be able to report that. I think the chances are, are fairly low, unfortunately, um, you know, very low, and I, I don't think we would be serving our readers if we were to proceed on that that minuscule chance, you know, as if it, as if it was going to happen. Um, I think we kind of alluded to this a little bit before, um, but, you know, firstly, I don't think basing our journalism on the fact that climate change is real and, and happening and harm will arise if we don't act um, is bias. I think that's, that's what journalists do, no, know, but it is, a, it is a form of advocacy if, if you're going to have sustainability at the heart of, of what you do in the public, uh, the journalism you do for the specific section as part of stuff's coverage of, as you say, a, an issue that overlaps with all, all sorts of things. We, we can't really get around it, though, can we, that it is advocacy and there, there will be things that you want to say and that it, it may exclude other perspectives because it doesn't quite fit with a sustainability-first approach. I'm not sure that that's true at all. I mean, uh, you know, I come back to the health example again. Uh, you know, is having a health reporter a form of advocacy um, and saying we're going to focus on the health system? I, you know, I don't know. Um, it seems to me that it's it's a fairly core part of journalism. I think what would be worrying would be if we were to exclude certain political perspectives on the solutions, for example. Um, I do think that... You know, and this is feedback I get from our readers quite a lot, actually, um, that we don't always air the full range of answers, the full range of ideas, the full range of solutions, um, because there are certain voices that are louder in this area. And I think that is a valid criticism and probably, you know, it's something that, that we should work on because I think the contest of ideas needs to be really strong and that, you know, requires some pretty robust conversations and robust stories coming out. Um, and I also think that it's important not to shy away from where there is real scientific debate um, because, you know, th there isn't real scientific debate about whether climate change is happening, whether it's serious, but there's still massive amounts of things that are being hashed out and figured out that are incredibly important to people. You know, there are people sitting on, on Zoom calls right now trying to hash out the best way to model when a particular marine ice shelf might collapse um, based on, you know, paleoclimate records. And whether, you know, whose model is right and who's got the best estimates of those things, they really matter. They're going to determine whether someone's house might flood in a big storm in the future. And all of that is, is real and it needs to be explored and it needs to be explored in a pretty unflinching way. So I think we wouldn't be doing our job if we were to kind of only focus on a small part of those debates or only, you know, air certain voices in that respect. Um, 
I, th- I think that journalists are actually pretty good um, at listening to those different voices, and I, I see a lot of that coming through, not just on stuff, but on you know Radio New Zealand and other outlets as well. Um, but I just, I'm not sure that it's partisan to proceed from the, the perspective that climate change is happening any more than we proceed from the perspective that other facts are real. The entire media sector right now is under review. Um, the government's working out how they can put together a package to help media companies survive in this post-COVID future. And you know, for the public end of it, a new entity to replace RNZ, TVNZ is, is government policy, though that's up in the air. So with all these things currently being pulled apart and put back together, do you think the climate emergency and sustainability need to actually be put into the government's plans for how they support media and that rather than just put money in and leave it up to the the companies to work out how they do their news gathering that some sort of direction from them is required? I'm not sure about that actually. Um, I think a lot of journalists get quite uncomfortable with the idea that the government directs the content of, of journalism. I think the existence of journalism uh, certainly needs to be secured. I think journalism in general has made a pretty good case for itself being essential in all sorts of areas this year, you know, not just climate. But, you know, I'd say that I see the overall survival and security of independent journalism as being more important than having some kind of special direction or special dispensation um, for, you know, my little part of the ecosystem. In fact, I think, you know, that is the kind of thing that that would introduce concerns about bias or, um, you know, undue government control. I think, I think the health and survival of media as a whole is the important thing here. Mm, but one of the solutions that's been uh, put forward by some people is one thing the government could do if it, if it is going to pump some money into media survival would be to uh, give New Zealand On Air, the government's broadcasting funding agency, uh, a bunch of m- more money, uh, the contestable funding that already exists for broadcasting. Some people are saying, look, let's beef that up a lot and cover more journalism, and that's one way of doing it. We'll use that system. So if that was to happen, do you think some of that should be tagged for projects addressing climate and sustainability? I mean, New Zealand on air seems to tag funding for various things now. Um, look, I don't know. I don't know that I would want to express a view on that. Um, you know, I simply haven't thought deeply enough about it. I think... What I would say is that readers have shown that they will click on this content. Um, the Forever Project has had more than 5 million page views since it launched in, launched in March, and that's just on the website. Um, so there's no problem kind of getting people to read it. I think the problem is the, the bigger issue of making uh, you know journalism a sustainable business model. Um, And I think, as I say, that goes far beyond climate change and probably needs a more overarching solution. I personally don't see an issue with either readers not reading the stuff or editors not, at least where I'm sitting, assigning importance to it or, you know, or or making it prominent um, in media coverage. So I think that part of the solution is actually probably the least of our worries at the moment. Um, I think we're all kind of struggling, aren't we, to think of of the way forward and how to make this sustainable.
That was Eloise Gibson, climate change editor at Stuff and the editor of the Forever Project Climate Change Initiative. The second edition of the project's quarterly magazine supplement appears today in the Sunday Star Times. And if you're a Waikato Times, Dominion Post or Press reader, you may have seen it already in your edition of the paper last Wednesday. All the Forever Project content is online as well. You'll find it in the Environment section of the Stuff website.